This podcast is brought to you by its financial supporters on Patreon. Zach, Breck, Jed, Tom, Alex, Christine, Jeff, and William. Thank you for helping me to have these conversations and to create this content. Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public, and it's something that I want to share. Donald G. McNeil Jr. is an author, a journalist, and was one of the earliest and leading New York Times science reporters to alert the world about the outbreak of COVID-19. During our conversation, Donald talks about his early career, learning about a pneumonia-like new virus in Wuhan, what the U.S. could have done differently to decrease deaths from COVID, the safety and efficacy of COVID vaccines, and what the U.S. might do to better prepare for future pandemics. All right, Donald, well, first of all, uh, thanks again for uh, for doing this and taking the time. I know you, you spend a lot of your time writing, and uh, it, it's a privilege to be able to talk to you. Welcome to the show. It's good to have you on. Thank you for inviting me. You got it. So I know we're going to talk a lot today about COVID specifically, but I, I'd like to give ample background to the situation that you found yourself in in probably January of 2020 and the prep work that you had done leading up to that just professionally. Um, maybe as an initial question, I, I would love to learn how you got into science journalism in the first place. What What was kind of the uh, the the rationale from your side to begin down that road professionally at the beginning. Okay. It's not a decision I made. Um, it just happened to me. Uh, I, you know, I'd, I'd been a journalist really my entire life since I started writing for my high school uh, magazine and, and, you know, was editor of, of uh, executive editor of the daily California at Berkeley. Um, and then I came to New York uh, looking for a newspaper job uh, Got lost on my way out to Long Island trying to get an interview with Newsday and arrived three hours late. I had an interview with Time Magazine, didn't get hired there. And some cousins of mine whom I was staying with had a next door neighbor who was an editor at the New York Times, and he agreed to see me and read my college clips and said, well, these are good for a college student, but you're not ready to be a reporter here. But if you want to be a copy boy, I'll put your name in for that job. And copy boy is literally carrying copy from the reporters up to the desk because everybody typed on books of carbon paper in those days um, and uh, going downstairs to get the papers off the press so they can fix the errors in them for the second edition and making the 11 o'clock coffee run in, in Times Square and all sorts of things. And, and I've worked my way up from there. Um, the way I ended up in science was I was actually the Broadway theater columnist in culture for a while, for one year. I was terrible at it. I have still never seen Oklahoma performed live on stage. I, I was picked for the job because I had been an editor. I hated it. Um, I was making people unhappy with the way I edited them. And I asked my boss if I could go back to writing. And the next opening he had was for the theater column. This is not the theater critic. This is the guy who wrote the sort of news of the Rialto. It was a column called On Stage and Off. And it was theater business and gossip and stuff like that. So it was a reporter's job. Um, and I had some years back, written a play that was produced off, off, way off Broadway, totally panned by the Times. Um, but that was more experience than anybody else he had on the staff that had at the time. So I was the theater correspondent. And my then wife 
was angling to be a foreign correspondent, which she had been doing for a while because she wanted to climb the ladder at the times. And that's how you did it. In those days, you never made it onto the masthead unless you had been, uh, been a foreign correspondent. And so suddenly one day she got taken out to lunch by the uh, editor-in-chief who said, okay, South Africa, Moscow, Jerusalem, Bangkok, and Rio, they're all coming up in the next six months. You and Donald talk about it tonight. Let me know tomorrow where you'd like to go. And we couldn't quite make up our mind that night. So he said, all right, I'll decide Johannesburg. Um, so we had to go home and tell the kids, hey, kids, guess what? As soon as kindergarten ends, we're moving to Africa. And, you know, they burst into tears and stuff. But so we ended up moving to Johannesburg and I was a correspondent there. Uh, well, she was the bureau chief. I was the bureau uh, non-chief uh, member. And um, so she was doing most of the truth and Recon- the, the apartheid related stuff, end of apartheid. Mandela was 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 uh, president and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was going on. And I was sort of looking for other stories and I was traveling to the other countries in Southern Africa and I started writing about AIDS. Um, because AIDS was AIDS was everywhere outside of South Africa, but it was actually not a big thing in South Africa. In fact, bizarrely, there was a rumor that it was a disease that didn't affect Africans, that it only affected white gay men. Because in South Africa, um, the closing of the borders because of apartheid, the boycott by all the rest of Africa, had not only kept trucks out of there and kept the South African rugby team from playing anybody else, but it had closed the borders, including to AIDS. And so the disease was just beginning to creep over the borders. And there was a great deal of denialism about it. The country didn't realize how rapidly the infection was growing. So I started covering it both in South Africa and outside of South Africa. Then, <clears throat> then we were moved to Paris after four years there. And I wasn't covering France because my French isn't really good enough to report uh, in. I don't, you know, I miss the jokes and interviewing things. So I was covering Eastern Europe and going back to Africa to write more about AIDS and particularly about um, the lack of access to drugs there. The, the drugs then cost $15,000 a year for a regimen. And um, uh, I wrote, I went to India and wrote the first story about Indian companies that were capable of making perfectly good AIDS drugs. And Suit, you know, for little money. And soon after that, the head of one of the companies called me and said, you know, I'm willing to make these drugs for $365 a year, a dollar a day, if I can find a market. So that became a front page story. And that, it, it, that sort of started the ball rolling to what eventually became the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis and Malaria, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, and, and the, the whole phenomenon that we see now of companies in India making drugs, in, including vaccines, COVID vaccines for Africa and for the rest of the poor world. So I came back that all that time, I was officially a foreign correspondent. So I was also covering the aftermath of 9-11. I went to Somalia for that and stuff and, and, uh, um, and other countries. And um, then we came back from overseas kind of abruptly and the editors didn't know what to do with me. And I hadn't really planned um, what was going to happen to me. So I went to see the editor-in-chief, Hal Raines, and said, okay, I'm back. And he said, well, you want to go back to culture and cover theater? I said, no, no, my, you know, I'm a different person now and I'm not, and I wasn't that good at that anyway. He said, well, how about science? we got science reporters. So I said, sure. So I went up to talk to the science editor and said, you know, first she said, well, I don't have a spot for you on my payroll. And I said, well, the boss says I work for you. Maybe you could check and see. Cause, uh, and she said, all right, well, uh, I need a health writer. And I said, okay, I, you know, I've, I've done some of that, but um, 
you know, you've got two MDs on your staff writing about cancer and heart disease and the, the things that Americans die of. How about letting me write about third world diseases? You know, the, the, and she, you know, malaria, AIDS, worms, diseases, you know, tuberculosis, all like other people die of, poor people die of. And she originally said, well, we don't really have a mandate to do that. And I said, no, oh, come on. I mean, you know, we write about wars in those countries. We write about it when people die and bust plunges in those countries. Two billion people are at risk of dying these diseases. How about we cover it? And she said, all right, we'll make it an experiment. And that's essentially what it was. It was an experiment. And, and you know, it became a beat. I mean, I was the first person to have that beat, Global Health, at the times. And now my replacement is a woman named Stephanie Nolan, who I think is great. Um, and uh, so that's, anyway, that's that's how I got into it. And it sort of expanded into covering all infectious diseases. I'm really lousy on heart disease and cancer and surgery and a few other things, except as they relate to um, uh, you know, what, what, what used to be called the third world is now, you know, underdeveloped countries and developing yep. countries. So. Your own, I'd be curious to know what along the way you did or how you learned scientifically enough to be, to produce these, this output, you know, the, did you have to go back to school? Was it kind of on the job training? How, how did you learn si the scientific details of, for example, um, viruses specifically, which I know we're going to be talking a lot about today. Sure. Um, I, I was pre-med for one year in college. I didn't get very far in it. Organic chemistry. I took, we'll look at it when I can't do this. Uh, you know, did not go to medical school. I did enjoy the courses in human biology. So I learned some stuff there. And then for the rest of it, you know, I'm a big reader and I pay attention when I interview people and, you know, I would talk to scientists and they were extremely patient and I'm not afraid to appear stupid, especially when I am stupid about a topic and to say, look, can you explain an antibody to, you know, to me? Is it a protein? If it, where, where does it come from? How is it made? Can you explain how, how does the antibody attach to the virus? And people from Tony Fauci on down, you know, were happy to talk about their work and very patient with explaining it to me. So I eventually, you know, figured it out. Uh, you know, not, I'm no virologist. I'm no microbiologist. I do not have a degree in any of this stuff, but I kind of understand the basics, I think pretty well now did. And it was all learning on the job. And for an audience who's would be listening to this show, who almost certainly is, is not any of those things. How would you describe that? How would you describe a virus in its most basic form? A virus is nothing but a little empty protein shell with a lot of spikes on the outside of it that allow it to attach to cells. And all it does is break open the wall of the cell and inject its genetic material, DNA or RNA, which hijacks that cell's machinery, that is your the human cell, and forces it to produce more viruses. It just makes copies of itself. Uh, I've had it described to me as like a commando team that lands in a village and takes over the auto parts factory in the village and um, converts it to making bombs. And this, this professor was actually trying to explain to me, uh, antigen presenting cells, which is a sort of signaling thing in the uh, immune system. And he said, he said, he said, what I specialize in is it's as if somebody in the a worker in the auto factory, who's been forced to make bombs now runs to the window and waves a bomb part out of the window to alert the rest of the town that the factory has been hijacked. And, and that, ramps up the defenses so the town gets together and attacks the factory. And and that's antigen presentation in the in, in virology. Yeah. 
last night as I was preparing for this interview, I was I went back through your Times reporting, and I think the first notation related to the coronavirus to COVID nineteen that you wrote about was late January of twenty twenty, and I believe the headline of that article was related to pneumonia-like symptoms that were being discovered in a new virus in China. I would love for you to speak to that. And, and also, if you can, to paint the picture of what you, having had all this background in infectious diseases and viruses as a, as a journalist, what you were seeing, what you remember noticing at that time that may have begun to set off some alarm bells for you. Okay. Um there, there was such an article, but that wasn't where it started. Um, ba- basically, I, I subscribe to a, a disease alert service called ProMed, which I get on my phone and, and on, in my email, and I try to read it. And it, it tells you about, you know, outbreaks of diseases all over, and they can be anything from encephalitis in horses to, to uh, you know, Ebola in humans in Africa to banana wilt disease to, I mean, if you read it, it terrifies you because it's like one epidemic after another starting in, in every kind of species in the world, uh, plants and animals and humans. And um, I noticed on the night of December 30th, um, a note about a mysterious outbreak of pneumonia in Wuhan. In, uh, in China. I didn't know where Wuhan was, not one of the cities I'd heard of, but it made me think, wow, this is a little bit like the beginning of SARS, because I did cover the beginning of SARS. And there were, in that case, the reports of mysterious pneumonias inside cities in southern China, which is back, this is back in 2003, I think it was, went on for weeks. And ProMed was, you know, putting out these requests for information saying, does anybody know? Does anybody know? And at the time, China was engaged in an enormous cover-up um, like a you know a full body press cover up uh, uh, directed by Beijing, um, and so we never we didn't find out for weeks what was going on. This I, and, and so anyway, I thought, eh, and, but I just the other thing I've learned about ProMed is that they are constantly declaring dangerous situations that could you know could turn into a pandemic that turn out to be nothing. Like like I remember there was a wedding in a rural village uh, somewhere in West Africa and 20 guests from the wedding died and, it, you know, within days after the wedding and it looked like, Oh my God. And I kept watching it. Turned out it was a really bad batch of homemade alcohol that had been served at the wedding and poisoned a whole lot of people. It just took them a little while to die from, from liver and kidney failure. Um, so you, I just, I, I put it in my head scratcher pile as something to watch. And actually, a couple of days later, I was went off on a fishing vacation to Argentina. First time I'd ever gone trout fishing, you know, outside the country, and it was I planned it for a long time. And so I went. And the friend of mine who was along on the trip said, "Ronald, you got weirder and weirder as that trip went on because we would spend the days fishing, and you'd come back and you'd, you know, read the news and listen. You'd come to dinner, kind of going, I'm not sure. Things are looking worse in China than I thought. This might be a problem. And uh, but I didn't. It was after I came back." Um, which was in, so I, I helped, I helped uh, the my colleagues in China uh, sort of put what they were writing. They were reporting what was happening in Wuhan, but but they were trying to put it in context. And I said, you know, from what I can see, from what the WHO says, and others say, there does not appear to be human to human transmission of this virus. And I and I said to them, look, don't be sustained. Since since we now know this is a coronavirus, and, a, and among the coronaviruses include SARS and MERS, do not be shocked if there is limited human-to-human transmission, if you hear reports of that. 
And that's dangerous. It's bad. But it's probably something that can be gotten under control the way SARS and MERS are kept under control. SARS is gone. MERS breaks out occasionally when it jumps from camels to people, but it's usually brought under control pretty quickly. Um, I said, so don't be shocked by that. What you worry about is sustained human-to-human transmission. And of course, by this time, there was a cover-up going on in China. It wasn't orchestrated by Beijing, I believe. It was orchestrated by the mayor of of Wuhan, who was very concerned because he had a local Communist Party Congress that was going on. He wanted everything to stay stay smooth for that. And he also had this, he was hoping to break the Guinness Book of World Records by getting 40,000 people together for a gigantic potluck dinner that would get him into the the Guinness Book. Um, And so he was ordering the doctors to be shut up. And he uh, he was the one who ordered the market closed down and hosed out, which of course is like wiping out a crime scene. You know, we're never able to figure out what was in that market. If we, if they start an investigation, we might know a lot more about the origins of the virus. Um, So a lot of contradictory and wrong information was coming out of China. And I was trying to offer advice to my colleagues. um, Most of whom were not in Wuhan. They were in Hong Kong or Beijing for a while. And uh, so I was just like, well, I think, you know, you might look this, or you might talk to this person. And I was talking to people and I was listening to the WHO um, and it wasn't until I think it was the night of January 30th when, so they had developed the tests, the tests had gotten more widespread because, you know, they developed the test on January 12th or 13th, I think, but they didn't get widespread to the testing. And they went from, you know, uh, 50 cases with no deaths to 500 cases with 12 deaths to, um, uh, I forget what it was, 5,000 cases with, with uh, 100 deaths. Or something like that. And, and I suddenly went, wait a minute. A, I was literally on the subway thinking about the figures in my head and, and on my way to my girlfriend's house. And, I, and I, any disease that doubles that fast is not stoppable. I mean, that's, that's not SARS. That's not MERS. That's, that disease is going to go pandemic. And if it's got that low and mortality rate, but it has a mortality rate, but is that low a mortality rate and that high a transmissibility rate, that is the Spanish flu all over again. That is what happened in 1918. You had a disease that covered, went around the entire world incredibly rapidly. It only killed about two to 3% of the, of the total number of the victims. And so I was up, I still have the piece of paper I was scribbling on doing the math at my girlfriend's house. I ended up saving that. And, um, and I came into work the next day saying, this is going pandemic. This is going pandemic. This disease is going to be a pandemic. This is going to be, this is the big one. And because I've been, you know, I've been waiting for the big one for years. I, the 2009 swine flu came out of Mexico. We thought it was going to be the big one. Well, it definitely was a big one as far as transmissibility is concerned. It was not the big one as far as lethality is concerned. It actually killed fewer people than seasonal flu did that year. MERS looked like it was going to be the big one, but it turned out to be, you know, not very transmissible. How it is that bird flu never, H5N1 bird flu never became more transmissible, we don't really know, but it's not. It's killed, it killed 60% of the people who get it, but only about, uh, I think there's only 600 and something confirmed cases in the world. So I've been waiting for the big one. Always kind of assumed it was going to be influenza, but I had talked to scientists, one scientist in particular, Ian Lipkin, who said, I worry just as much about coronaviruses because he was an expert in them. And so I was saying to my boss, this is the big one. And she said, wait a minute, you can't write a story saying that until you've interviewed, you know, you got to talk to at least a dozen scientists and see what they think. So I did. I called literally a dozen scientists, you know, people like Tony Fauci, people who had, you know, led attacks on other diseases, people, you know, 
heads of the you know disease fighting divisions at the CDC or at the WHO, people in those positions. And basically it came down to eight said, yes, they thought it was going to be a pandemic. Two said, no, they thought it was a false alarm, uh, scary, but a false alarm. And two just did not want to commit at all. So I went to her and I said, okay, I got eight to two to two. Um, you know, one of those eight is Tony Fauci. And, uh, you know, he was not as controversial then as he is now, but he was, you know, he was just the, the guy yeah. um, who always advised the White House on these things. And uh, she said, okay, write it. So I wrote that story saying experts say it looks like it's going to be a pandemic. The story did not make the front page. There yeah. was, there was a uh, nervousness about that. And there was another story about the flu in, in I maybe mean, about the disease in Wuhan. From, I mean, a story from China on the front page that day. Um, and for a while, you know, since, the, since it was still mostly contained in Wuhan, nobody believed me. I mean, at, at the times I ran into a lot of skepticism. Um, and I, and I did for several months, um, for a while there, uh, people just not believing that the situation was as dangerous as it was, as it was, um, on February 27th, Michael Barbaro invited me onto the daily to talk about that. So this is a three week difference. Yeah. Um, and by this time I'm a lot more worried and it's really looking, you know, I mean, we, by this time, the big study of the first 44,000 cases has come out of China. We know 80% of the cases are quote mild, although mild could include, uh, everything up to, up to hospitalization. Um, but everybody talked, took that as mild cold, um, but 20% of the cases were very serious. And, um, and, and my, on the daily, I talked about, you know, I'm the kind of person who has a month's worth of food in the basement. You know, if you really have a pandemic, you can have global food shortages. You can have, you know, your, your crucial supplies can run out. You know, if you've, you know, in a pandemic with a 2% mortality rate, if you've got 300 friends and acquaintances, you know, six of the people, you know, are going to die. And, you know, one of my oldest friends' uh, grandmothers died in the 1918 pandemic. And that just, I mean, I didn't realize what an effect I was having, but so many people have written to me since then saying, oh my God, that's, that was terrifying. And that was the moment, the first time I took this disease seriously. Yeah. And uh, so that's the whole, that's basically yeah. the run-up to how it happened. Let, let, to, to add some additional context for for people who, again, are not scientifically uh, prolific or, or uh, literate uh, to the level that, that, that you are. A coronavirus, right? It seemed like a couple of things I wanted to clarify here. One is that in your mind, it, it was really the, if, and you can correct me if I'm wrong about this, the combination of the fact that there was a significant fatality rate and the uh, extreme transmiss transmissibility of the virus, that those two things in combination is what got you so concerned that this would balloon into a pandemic. Is is that correct? Or are there yes. other factors there? Yes. No, no, that that's it. it I mean, the, the fact it was a coronavirus, that, the only reason that mattered, I mean, there are dozens of families of viruses. If I knew all more, I might be able to say hundreds, you know, influenza viruses, coronaviruses, alpha viruses, bunya viruses, uh, flaviviruses. Uh, I mean, there's all these different families of viruses, all based on one word or another. The coronavirus gets its name because all the viruses in that family look like a corona, a crown. They have these spikes on the outside under an electron microscope. And, and so we knew that that family of viruses, well, we, I mean, virologists knew that family of viruses was dangerous because there had been SARS, which was clearly lethal. I think SARS kills 
10% of the people who get it. There had been MERS, a coronavirus, which I think kills 30% of the people who get it. And then there were four highly transmissible but very benign coronaviruses uh, with names like EK1 and OC13 or something like that. Um, and those cause almost a quarter of the common colds that you see. So we've all had those viruses at one time or another in our life, but they didn't worry us because all we said was, oh, I have a cold. You, you know, nobody, nobody typed that virus. But that way you know, uh-oh, this family of viruses has the possibility to be either very transmissible or very lethal. Usually you don't get the two in combination, but anytime you get anything that's two or three percent lethal and very transmissible, you spew that around the world and you're going to lose millions of people. And we have lost, you know, more than five million people now and it's not close to over. Yeah. And you you had studied you know, potential issues like this. You mentioned SARS and MERS um, already in this conversation. So you knew that there were, you, I, I'm imagining that you had thought through what can happen in a situation like the, like COVID-19 ended up being. As you're hanging out with your girlfriend and you're writing down the numbers and your, your brain, I'm sure, is beginning to forecast of what, what could be coming here. Where were you, where, where was your head at that point? What did you what did you think? And again, to put this in context in terms of time, this is February, January, February of twenty twenty. Late, late January, yeah. Um, I mean, I so I, I I convinced I became convinced it was going to be a pandemic. Basically, on I worried about it before, but I really became convinced on January thirtieth when when that ten thousand ten thousand cases. Um, what was it? Two percent. Uh, anyway, the the when they finally did ten, they got ten thousand positive cases, and they realized it had about a two percent mortality rate. That that's when I was sure. After that, I, I mean, my main feeling was I got to warn people. I got to yeah. tell people. I got to, you, you, you know, I, I this has happened before, and I spend a lot of time thinking, you know, am I being too alarmist about this, or am I not being alarmist enough? Because you know, I was, as it turns out, too alarmist about the bird flu, the H5N1 bird flu. I thought that would develop the mutations it needed to become pandemic. And since it was already killing, you know, 60% of the people who got it, it just a little increase in transmissibility could be really, really lethal. It could have been like the Black Death. Well, but it never happened. Still could, but it never has. And there have been other bird flus, H7N9. H9N1, a couple of others that have that have been worrisome, and they've killed some people, um, and they've blown through like the turkey flocks in this country, like like a you know like a tank, and killed or, or caused the culling of millions of turkeys. So, but so I worry about that. That that is one I was too alarmist about. I was not alarmist enough about the last Ebola epidemic, the, the well, not the last, but the big one in in West Africa, um, because I thought, eh, you know, Ebola, it's bad. There's no question it kills people, but the WHO and Doctors Without Borders have always gotten them under control in the past. So when my editor was saying, do you think we should rush over and cover this? And I, my feeling was kind of like, no, I'm not, I'm not so sure this is going to get that bad. You know, the, most they've been brought under control. Um, and I said, basically, well, why don't we have, why don't you ask the guy in West Africa to cover it? Now? And, and, and then that virus reached the capital cities and that changed the entire equation and 11,000 people died. Had it just stayed in the, really, really deep rural areas where it started, it just wouldn't have been able to reach enough people. Once it hit the capital cities in three different countries, 
its growth was explosive. And so I, I underestimated it. And then I scrambled to, you know, to cover it. I think I got Zika right. I think I was the first one to raise the alarm outside of Brazil itself, you know, about Zika. Um, and I, I was being driven crazy in the early days of Zika because, you know, this was this was Christmas time. It was a week after Christmas. And um, lots and lots and lots of New Yorkers and people from all the cold parts of the United States were going to the Caribbean on honeymoons. And it was very clear that the, the virus was all over um, the Caribbean and, and, you know, all the coastal parts of Latin America. And I was saying to the CDC, lots of pregnant women are going on these trips with their families and lots of people are going on baby moons and, and, uh, and people going on their honeymoons. You've got to issue an alert, you know, these babies. And they dragged their feet for two weeks. And I ended up screaming at one poor uh, guy at the CDC, a spokesman so loud. And I, I, you know, about, you know, pregnant women are calling me for advice and I'm not a doctor and I'm, you know, not a disease alert service. And, you know, the CDC has got to say something. Why are you delaying so long? And I got so mad, I ended up throwing my, my headset across the room as I hung up. And the whole part of the science newsroom next to me stood up and started applauding (laughs) when somebody loses it at a government official like that and stuff, they were saying, okay. uh, um, And about, you know, it was another five or six days before the CDC finally issued its alert to pregnant women. And the delay was that they were telling every country that they were, you know, that they're, that they were about to drop a big bomb into their tourist trade. Yeah. And they felt it was more important to alert those countries and soothe over those national egos and than it was to tell pregnant women. And I just, I was pissed off, but you know, I'm a reporter. I mean, now I'm writing sort of editorial like things for, for medium, but at the time I was a reporter. So all I could do is try to find some way to write a story saying why the CDC is delaying. Um, and I did, and they were unhappy about it, uh, but you know, too bad. They should have yeah. gotten, gotten moving. So, I mean, yeah, anyway, this is a long way of answering the question of, of uh, I think a lot about, am I getting this right? Um, you know, what level of alarm should I put out? Because when you work for the New York Times, a lot of people follow your lead. Um, and and you if you're, if you're wrong, you look like a goat. So I'm pretty careful, but I you know, waited until I thought I had the data on my side. And then I said, this is really worrying. I could be wrong. I've been wrong before, but this really worries me. And a lot of people could die. And yeah, yeah. A, lot people, a lot of people are dying. When you had that data and you were personally convinced that COVID-19 was going to be a pandemic, first, I would love for you to just define that word for the audience of what a pandemic technically means. And then also talk about, given what you had known about COVID at that time, what you thought that was going to mean for global commerce, for day-to-day life for American citizens. How were you thinking about how this virus would end up actually affecting normal people's lives? Um, Okay. So pandemic... I mean, there was a formal WHO definition of a pandemic, which was sustained human-to-human transmission of a novel pathogen in two or more WHO regions. But that came back to backfire on them during the um, during the 2009 flu, because even though it was spread all over the Americas, all of the Americas is one uh, WHO region. So there had to be sustained. It was ridiculous. So they stopped trying to define it. Actually, what's 
the declaration of a pandemic is not what's important to the WHO. For them, what is important is the declaration of a PHEIC, which is pronounced PIKE or FIKE or FIKE or other, which is a public health emergency of international concern. And that is actually something they are legally allowed to do. They declare the public health emergency of international concern. And they did that a couple of weeks before they declared the pandemic. The thing is that because people aren't familiar with the WHO and the rules it operates under, they the, the press, other than me, was much more excited about them declaring it a pandemic than about the public health, health emergency of international concern. But they declared the pandemic only because they weren't being taken seriously before. They just they didn't want to do that because they were afraid if we declare a pandemic, then a lot of countries are just going to throw up their hands and say, okay, it's uncontrollable. There's nothing we can do. And, and just, just let it roll over them. And they still thought because of the way China was doing it, that the disease could be contained with, with harsh measures. Um, uh, I think they referred to them as aggressive measures. They were, yep. were avoiding saying brutal draconian measures, which is what the rest of the world was saying about China. Um, uh, so, but ultimately they declared a pandemic and that, you know, set the alarm that, that they did it because it, they needed to ring the alarm bell harder. People just weren't paying attention. Poor Tedros, you know, the head of the, the agency was every day he was holding a press conference saying there is a window of opportunity to stop this virus, but that window is closing. People have to be, other countries have to be more aggressive about preparing. Uh, and many, many countries, including this one, were absolutely refusing to take it seriously. So. Um, what did I think was going to happen? Well, I thought a lot of Americans were going to die. I thought to prevent that, we would have to imitate China. But I also knew we were not going to be able to imitate China. I mean, you know, we couldn't even close the bathhouses in San Francisco in the 1980s when it was very clear that AIDS was being transmitted in those bathhouses and large numbers of people were being infected and going on to die because we Americans like our freedoms. Um, and so I thought, I don't know what we're going to be able to do. I mean, I, I, I could say, here's what China's doing. Italy didn't take this seriously. Then Italy realized that, you know, thousands of people were dying up in the cities in the north. And then they cracked down and they actually asked for advice from the Chinese as to how should we handle this. And the Chinese flew into Italy and said, you call us a lockdown. This is a joke. People still leave in their houses. People are still traveling, spreading the virus around the country. you got to stop all traffic until you get this under control. So the Italians began to take it seriously. Clearly, things were totally out of control in Iran. We, we only knew that basically from satellite pictures and from stuff that leaked out, but the satellite pictures of Iran showed that they were digging gigantic mass graves. You know, So something was really going wrong inside there. And it began to spread to other countries um, in, in Europe and where we got a lot of information out of, um, but it was already, we didn't realize if it, it was already spreading in the United States. And we were just not, we, we were in a completely headless chicken phase for a long time because we didn't have the tests. The Chinese developed a test on January 12th or 13th. Within 48 hours, the Germans had developed a test, which became the WHO test. We should have just bought that test or imitated it. Instead, the CDC insisted on making its own test they came up with a complicated test, which tested for three parts of the virus rather than two, um, and they blew it. They contaminated their own lab. The, the test turned out to be no good. They shipped it around to different state labs, and the state labs said, hey, we're getting false negatives on these tests and false positives, even when we tried on the controls. 
they didn't allow anybody else to make their own tests. It turns out that some people were quietly making their own tests. Like I knew somebody at a hospital in New York who told me, well, we know we have five patients and staff infected. And I said, how do you know? And she said, we made our own tests. And she said, we're not, you know, we can't reveal that to the, to the FDA because they don't approve any of but you know, we didn't have any tests. So, so basically for all of February, we were flying blind. And because we didn't know how widespread the virus was, and because we didn't know where it was, it was, it was rampant in New York. It was, and, and the metropolitan area, it was semi rampant in Seattle where it actually probably got to earlier. Um, and then it spread outward from there with spring break with a lot of other things. We did not need to shut down the entire country, but we didn't know that because we didn't know that the virus was really in the first wave. It was only concentrated in New York, Seattle, San Francisco, you know, parts of Northern California, a few other places. If we had known more, we would have been able to shut down the country in a much more judicious, sensible way and restrain the virus. Instead, we went from indifference to you know, having to cancel everything, March Madness, Comic-Con, uh, South by Southwest, all these other things. And people were going nuts saying, how can you, you know, and th- there was a rebellion against the idea of, of canceling all this fun and then shutting down the economy. And so there was this giant backlash against it. And of course, Trump's, you know, response to the a, a serious strong warning from Nancy Messonnier of the CDC saying it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when this virus gets to the country and it's going to be very bad when it gets here. You know, he was visiting India. The stock market drops 500 points. He th- flies into a rage and basically orders her shut up, thinking he can make the problem go away by just pretending it doesn't happen. Uh, it, doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't exist. You can just kind of, kind of talk the, the stock market back up. And so, I mean, I did not, I had no way of knowing the country would react that badly, that ineptly to the virus, that the denialism was so great. I knew there would be denialism. I'd seen it in South Africa from Tabo Mbeki, the president over the, over the AIDS, the, the AIDS virus, seen it in other African countries, just pretended they had no, no cases of AIDS. Um, I thought once it became screamingly obvious that the hospitals were filling up and people were dying, that the president and everybody around him would change their tune and realize, hey, we have a real crisis on our hands, as you know, eventually Boris Johnson figured out, as Angela Merkel figured out very quickly, as the Italians figured out after they watched people die in the North, as many countries, you know, tried denialism, did it, it lasted briefly, they saw people dying, they changed their tune. In this country, we didn't change our tune, we really still have it, you know, a significant chunk of the country still won't get vaccinated, because they just kind of don't believe either in the virus or the mask or the, the vaccine or whatever they don't believe in, they don't believe in it. And it's denialism. And and I, I underestimated the amount of denialism and how, how much damage that would do to the United States. Yeah. I mean, we could, I, I'm trying to calculate how many fewer people might have died if we had taken this as seriously as Germany did. And my rough calculation that I made in October was probably we would have lost 200,000 to 300,000 fewer people. Um, now, of course, Germany is having another wave, so we'll, we'll see what happens in the end. But, you know, some countries reacted, some countries didn't. And we were one of the big non-reactors and we paid for it in, you know, human lives. Yeah. And we're going to do some Monday morning quarterbacking here related to what we could have done. I think you've already alluded to this may be your, you know, your biggest observation. You can correct me if I'm wrong about this related to what we could have done better that we didn't, which is just buying the German test. 
and using that from the beginning and that you know that in concert with what it sounds like is botching our own testing ability from the CDC is in you know in your judgment one of the big reasons why it, it ballooned into the problem it did it, it, is that a fair assessment of your perspective and what else could we have done um, that may have improved the situation domestically we could have either bought the German test the WHO test or the French one I mean ultimately Thailand had a, had a working test lots of countries had working tests we could have also turned to one of 500 labs in this country men 500 is probably an underestimate they could have made a perfectly good PCR test I mean there are there are many many labs even even hospital sized labs that know how to put together PCR primers and and make a test and they and they had the sequence of the virus so they could have done it but there is a long-standing problem at the CDC that has an attitude that if it wasn't invented here, it didn't happen. And I saw that during the Ebola outbreak in, in 2014. There were all these great papers that have been written by French scientists about Ebola outbreaks in Gabon that the Pasteur Institute had fought. And you never saw the CDC referencing any of the French papers. They only referenced the, the studies that, that they had done <coughs> fighting outbreaks in Zaire and places like that. And I thought, you know, this is kind of... The CDC likes to shut its eyes to uh, it, it. It likes to steal credit from other scientists. There's a long problem the history of that of people sending samples and then the CDC tests the samples and the scientists who sent the samples, you know, get very low down credit. And the top scientists, the CDC, took top credit. And the CDC likes to um, uh, likes to sort of box other people out of the things that it specializes in. And and the FDA went along with this too. They were not approving tests by anybody else. So the FDA. And then the FDA lurched from approving no other COVID test, test for the presence of the virus, no other PCR test, to approving way too many antibody tests to see if you'd had the virus. Like they basically flung open the doors and said, send us your test, announce how it works and, and give us your data and we'll look into it and prove it later. And so there are all these really bad uh, non-functioning antibody tests on the market for a while. And I was counseling everybody, don't take these antibody tests. They're so inaccurate that you're going to, you're going to think you've already had the disease. You're going to act as if you've already had it and you're safe. And you're going to find out later that you didn't have the disease. You had a cold or the flu or something. Because, you know, in January, the cold and flu were definitely circulating. We were having, we were on our way to having a pretty bad cold year, a uh, flu year that year. So a lot of people were sick, assumed they'd had COVID when in fact they'd had the flu. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they were, that was egregious. Our, uh, the, the, the failure to produce a good test within days instead of having really a two-month delay just like I said, headless chicken face. We were just stuck. We didn't know what was happening, and and yeah. we didn't even we didn't even we didn't know that we didn't know. I mean, that was one of uh, uh, Rumsfeld's unknown unknowns, where you you really get caught when you don't know what you don't know, and and you and you proceed anyway. Yeah. If we would have been better prepared, if we would have had a better test, and it, we would have taken this threat very seriously from the beginning. I think you mentioned already that you know, in retrospect, it appears like the where where COVID initially was a, you know, a serious problem was New York, Seattle, San Francisco. It was it was uh, it focused in a few different parts of the country. What paint the picture for the audience of what the forthcoming months could have looked like if we would have been better prepared, if we would have had adequate testing. How could 2020 have unfolded in a different way if we would have been ready? Okay. Um, had we had testing, we would have known 
uh, how widespread the virus was in New York. When we finally got tests in mid-March, I was really shocked because, and I, and I wrote letters to my family, my friends, my softball team, the guys I play squash with and stuff saying, get inside. I think this whole city is really hot with virus. And the reason I think that is because I know there was a big outbreak up at New Rochelle. I know there was a big outbreak in New Jersey. And I just sort of assumed those are spreading, but I had no evidence. And then when the tests were spreading out, I was suddenly realizing, wow, you know, a father in my friend's class has, has got the disease. And wow, five people in this hospital have the disease. And wow, um, you know, one of my colleagues at the Times was, had died of the disease by that point. And, uh, um, you know, I was, it was just like ping, 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 ping. And that tells you, boy, it's not isolated. It didn't stay in New Rochelle, you know, the outbreak we knew about. It is spreading. And so had we had enough tests early on, we could have known where the virus was, and we could have, one thing we would have done is we would have shut down travel from New York to the rest of the country. We would, I mean, the first place the virus went out of New York was down to Florida. Lots of New Yorkers fled down. They headed to Florida. There was a ring of positive cases around New York City that basically was just about the size of where New Yorkers own vacation homes, sort of up to the Berkshires, over into the, you know, the... Um, Poconos, uh, out to the very tip of Long Island, out to Montauk and stuff like that. And I just thought like, God, this is New Yorkers holding up in the country and they've all carried the virus with them. Um, and that's why, you know, things like Rhode Island, were doing things like turning away uh, uh, cars with New York plates on them. Uh, that's not an irrational response. It sounds horrible. What do you mean? New Yorkers can't fly. Well, you know, you, you want to, you know, now we're putting this in, in position on South Africa stopping all flights from Southern Africa. People saying it's outrageous. The virus is already here. The virus is here, but there's a difference between one person walking through a dry forest with a lighted match and a thousand people walking through a lighted forest. You're going to get a lot more fire if you send a thousand people. And so you, you want to try to slow down the transmission of people until you have a handle on how big the problem is how dangerous it is, which we're learning about the Omicron variant. The same thing could have happened then if we'd been prepared. We would have been able to say, let's shut down travel. Let's, you know, let's go into lockdown here in New York City, but there's no reason to go into lockdown in Houston or in Missoula, Montana or any place else, you know, because right now there's almost no virus in those places. And let's, you know, and let's come up with an isolation plan as the Chinese have done. They were smart in that they didn't make they didn't let anybody once they were positive nobody went home to quarantine no home quarantine you once you turned positive you sat there in the room until they found you a hotel room or eventually a spot in one of these they created all these hospitals that were really just gymnasiums with mm. nurses and and oxygen tanks where they kept an eye on people who were sick and if they crashed, which was typical second week crash in this disease, if they crashed, then they would be put into a regular hospital. Mostly they were just kept there for 10 to 14 days until they were no longer infectious and they could go home with their family. And because they had figured out very early on, 70 to 80% of the spread was within the family um, in their in their first wave in China. And so if we had managed to pull people out as soon as one person got, if we managed to do testing fast, pull people out and isolate them in, you know, in a nice way, you're not hanging people up by their thumbs in a, you know, in a dungeon somewhere, you're basically saying, please sleep in this cot in this gymnasium, uh, you know, and there will be nurses around to make sure that nothing goes wrong because one phenomenon is that people would go home and they think they're okay for a few days. And then suddenly their oxygen levels would drop and they'd, you know, in the worst part of the pandemic, they couldn't get an ambulance because the ambulances were all filled and people died at home because 
they couldn't get care in time. It's actually much better to isolate people under the eyes of nurses. And, and uh, so you can find the ones who are, who are crashing and help them. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of these things we should have done. But yeah. instead, we chose denialism. I would love for you to, you've already a couple of times mentioned the Spanish flu of 1918, um, you know, early 20th century, and contrast that pandemic and that disease with the coronavirus, with COVID-19. What, what's the difference between the two? And what do we now know happens to a human being who gets COVID-19? Uh, okay. So the, the Spanish flu is misnamed because it didn't start in Spain. It, yeah. Spanish king, right? Uh, sorry? The Spanish, Spanish king got it, which is why they, they named it the Spanish flu. No, they named it the Spanish flu because um, we, don't even, we don't know where it started. It may have even started in right. Kansas. Uh, typically, influenzas tend to, tend to start in southern China because there's a lot of uh, people who live with ducks and chickens and stuff under their, in their houses in winter, especially in those days. And, and it was it, usually new flus are mixed of avian genes because uh, ducks and geese and other waterfowl are the original hosts of flus in the same way that bats are the original host of coronaviruses. I'm, I'm really going off into virality tangents here, but um, no, the reason it didn't get, it got called the Spanish flu is because it went certainly from America with the American army over to France. It went through the French army, the English army, the German army, large numbers of people, large numbers of soldiers were dying at the front. Large numbers of soldiers were out of action, but military censorship meant that it could never be discussed because it would, you know, um, cause a drop in morale. So only when the flu got to Spain and large numbers of people began dying in Spain were the newspapers filled with these reports because there were were no military censors in Spain, so they weren't part of the war. Um, And so that's why it got identified with Spain. It may be that the Spanish king caught caught it, but it was already known as the Spanish flu because that. So flu, um, there's a difference between coronaviruses and and flu viruses. They both attack the lungs, but the 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 Flu viruses uh, attached to a different set of receptors. They're called the sialic acid receptors. And they do mostly lung damage, whereas this virus attaches to ACE2 receptors, which are very uh, common on the insides of your blood vessels. It's a vascular disease. And that's why it attacks not just the lungs. Anywhere you have a really fine network of blood vessels in the body, they're going to attack it. So that's your lungs. It's your kidneys. To some extent, it's your heart. So you get lots more kidney damage and stuff with this um, disease than you did with, uh, with Spanish flu. Spanish flu, people tended to hemorrhage a lot in their lungs. They, they died within 24 to 48 hours. They, they turned blue from being unable to breathe. And when they dissected people, their lungs would be like soggy, weighing five times as much as they ought to weigh and basically filled with blood. Whereas if you dissect the lungs of COVID patients, um, they tend to be stiff and crumbly. And, and it's that the, they're, um, they haven't had huge hemorrhages. People aren't coughing up blood from COVID. Instead, you get, a, you, you get the cytokine storm in which a lot of um, uh, inflammatory chemicals and stuff get in there and they make the lungs incredibly brittle. And right, but, they all, but also the damage goes all over the body. So a lot of people die from kidney failure from this. A lot of people end up on, when somebody comes into the hospital with COVID, they automatically give them anticoagulants. That's part of the standard repertoire now. And um, that is so that they, you know, to keep the blood from clotting. And they, um, very often people who are very sick from COVID end up on dialysis because their kidneys are failing. So they're, 
similar and that they're very transmissible. They're similar that they have similar amounts of, of lethality. Um, but look at it this way. In 1918, basically when somebody got sick, all you could do is put them to bed and bring them chicken soup. I mean, we did not have bottled oxygen. We did not have antibiotics. And a lot of people died of secondary bacterial infections after, you know, after they got the flu first, it damaged their lungs, bacteria got in, they died of bacterial infections. So antibiotics would have made a difference. Bottled oxygen made a difference. Uh, obviously, we didn't have ventilators. We didn't have ECMO machines. We didn't have all these things. We didn't have steroids to keep people's lungs um, more, uh, you cut down the inflammation in their lungs. And obviously, we didn't have any of the, any of the monoclonal antibodies or any of that stuff. So this disease, I think, is actually more dangerous. In other words, had this disease struck in 1918, more people would have died. Even the first Chinese study said, uh, and that was the the first version of the virus. We've gone through many mutations since then, many variants since then. But the first version of the virus, 80% of people got it and recovered on their own. And this is of the symptomatic. They didn't even know about the asymptomatic people. The symptomatic people, 80% of them recovered on their own. 20% needed oxygen or more. So figure half the cases are asymptomatic. That's probably generous. Um, so 20% of half or 10% of these people need oxygen or, or need to be on a ventilator. We didn't have oxygen or ventilators. So if this disease had struck in 1918, it probably would have had a 10% lethality. I mean, that's totally back of the envelope thumbnail epidemiology, but more people would have died if this virus had struck in 1918 um, than if Spanish flu had struck in 1918. So I, I mean, we're very lucky we live in the age we do. Um, and we, it's a, amazing to me that we've made vaccines as rapidly as we did. You know, the record before was four years for making the measles vaccine back in the 1960s. Um, and it's only because we spent billions of dollars to pay for very, very large clinical trials was that they could push the vaccines through the testing process very quickly. And also they can make the vaccine a lot faster. You're practically you're practically typing it out, um, you know, once you know the genetic sequence. But you have to do a lot of work to make sure that the spike protein is stabilized and things like that. But once they, once they did it, you know, mRNA uh, technology produces vaccine pretty fast. And, and if, you, if you recruit 40,000 people into a trial and half of them get the vaccine and half of them get the placebo, you pretty quickly get a signal in the differences between the two arms that shows you whether or not the vaccine works. Yeah. And I want to I want to get into the vaccinations uh, specifics and and just for reference we're having this conversation in December of 2021 early December of 2021. I want to talk to you about the the months in the teeth of the pandemic you know from early 2020 into mid 2020 to late 2020. Um, you know you're writing constantly at this time. What you know, prior to the vaccine being created, what did you think the outcome of this was going to be for the world and for the United States? Well, I didn't, I didn't want to try to predict how many people were going to die. The early models said if the United States did nothing, did nothing, just trying to pretend, kept pretending this didn't happen, that 2.2 million people would be dead by October of 2020. Um, obviously, we haven't hit 2.2 million now. We're with 700 plus thousand, close to 800,000. Um, I, you know, the articles I wrote, and I was mostly writing these big 5,000 word long, where are we now kind of articles. I mean, I was writing things in between that, but those are the things that I was um, kind of known for at the time. And uh, 
um, and plus the appearances on the daily. And my articles were just unbelievably gloomy. I mean, they were they were they were illustrating them with black and white pictures just to sort of emphasize the gloomy aspect. And you know, lots of pictures of rows of refrigerated trucks parked behind hospitals and bodies being carried out in body bags. And you know, I, I and I just kept writing articles saying, look. People are not taking this seriously. We're, we're, we're coming out of lockdown in time for Memorial Day. And if there's if people go out and you know get together for Memorial Day parties, there's going to be a new surge. And sure enough, there was a summer surge. And the, you know, the, the spring surge was mostly in the Northeast. The summer surge was mostly in the South. <clears throat> I mean, it was all across the nation, but it was mostly, it tended to be concentrated in the South. And then the Christmas, the really the back to school surge, which became the Labor Day surge became the Thanksgiving surge became the Christmas surge, that gigantic one that, that you know, that that was the big peak of the mess that was all over the country. Um, and then we had the later um, UK beta surge and, and, and then the Delta surge. Now we'll see what happens with this one. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm losing track here. Uh, I was really gloomy for basically all of the spring and all the summer and, and writing about how, you know, the, the governors are asking for trouble if they are reopening their states at a time when their cases are rising, because, you know, if your cases are falling, you know, where the bottom is, you know, where the sort of baseline level, when your cases are rising, if you just do things that are going to increase, increase the caseload, you have no idea where the top is. You don't know when the curve is going to, bend over and start going down again. And, and the danger is, of course, that your, your um, ICUs will get crowded. And that studies were showing by the VA and stuff that if, if, if you went into an ICU that was more than 75% occupied, your chances of surviving cut, were cut by half. Uh, a crowded ICU is a bad place to be when you've got exhausted doctors and nurses and supplies run out and people are, are on, all the ventilators are taken or you got two two people hooked to one ventilator, or or uh, you know they, all those things. Just stuff goes wrong, and people die when stuff goes wrong. Then, re- earlier than anybody else, I suddenly had this burst of optimism, and it it um, I think I wrote that story in October because I could see the data from the vaccines the very early data, the monkey data, the phase one data was suggesting that they would work. And I've been following mRNA vaccines for a while because I, since I cover global health, I pay attention to new advances in vaccines. And I, everybody knew, I didn't know many details, but I knew that the mRNA vaccines were considered very likely to be safe because they were not using any sort of whole virus. They were just putting a little, a little tiny stretch of RNA into you that got broken down very quickly by the, by the enzymes in the body. So that we knew it was safe, we never knew if it would work. It was like a great idea. You could like type out a new vaccine, you know, the the sequence of bases really quickly. We never knew if it worked. And then suddenly, when the data came out in the monkeys, holy cow, it worked really well. Those monkeys were protected. And then when when the, the phase one safety data doesn't tell you anything, this tells you that people didn't have bad side effects. That was reassuring. We didn't expect that. But when the, when, a little bit of the early data came out showing that people were actually protected by the vaccines too. I thought, oh man, this is going to change everything. And so I wrote 
I think it was late September, early October, I wrote an article that was illustrated with a picture of like a house under attack with these giant clouds, but there was this one tiny beam of light shining down through the clouds, um, uh, you know, on, on this on this house, it looked like it may, maybe there was some possibility it was going to be saved. And, and I said, I'm actually optimistic for, you know, I mean, it's, winter's going to be hell. Winter's going to be hell, but I think by next spring, we're going to have a lot of vaccines because Operation Warp Speed looks to me like it's likely to work, that they are they have spent the money now to produce millions and millions of doses. And these vaccines look like the mRNA vaccines look like they might work. And uh, actually, there was a meeting of the science department with the managing editor. And he went with you, Donald, you're optimistic. You know, you're Mr. Mr. Cassandra, Mr. Cassandra, Mr. Gloom and Doom. And I said, no, I'm actually beginning to think this might be over in less than, you know, four years, which I feared. Um, that we'll have a vaccine soon. And if we all take the vaccine, if it turns out to be as protective as these early indications are, um, we could beat this. And then when the later figures came out showing the vaccine was 95% effective, like, holy shit, that's, you know, that's not, they were hoping for something that was 50% effective. And 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 Monsef Slawi, who was the head of Operation Warp Speed, had told me, early on that he expected them to be maybe 75%. He said, I don't, I don't consider 50% a floor. I consider, you know, 75% they might be. And I thought, okay, that's, that's pretty optimistic. That'll, that'll definitely get approved if it's that. And then it turned out, you know, 95% and two vaccines with 90 plus percent of efficacy. I thought, this is great. This is, this is, this is going to be the end. You know, it's all a question of how fast we roll up the vaccines. And I assumed I assumed people would take them. I assumed it would not be easy in the beginning because there was all that talk about, you know, like in, in the early surveys, 50% of the people said they weren't going to take a vaccine. They, they thought it was rushed. And I thought, okay, the way this normally works is lots of people express fear of the vaccine. Then they see it begin to work. Their friends and neighbors get it. Nobody grows a third leg. Nobody's eyeballs turn purple and then fall out. Um, you know, and then word keeps coming out more and more that, hey, it's working. Hey, it's working. And you see people who are vaccinated not getting sick and people who aren't vaccinated getting sick. I thought, okay, facts on the ground will convince people. Well, I was right in that it wasn't 50% resistance to the vaccine, but it's astonishing how much resistance to the vaccine there has been, that there's been a good third of the country that, you know, either says I'll never do it or I'll do it only if I'm forced. And Forcing them has been pretty successful, um, you know, among hosp- hospital employees, nursing home employees. I thought there was no question they were going to have to force people and that because lots of people who work in nursing homes and, and, and hospitals try to avoid getting the flu shot every year. And, you know, the doctors all get the shots, but, but some of the nurses, especially the sort of lower, less educated, ranking, less educated nurses, basically have a hard time be- believing the precepts of medicine, even though they practice in the medical field and they're afraid of vaccines and, uh, and the hospitals have to control it by making them wear masks during the flu season. I thought there'd be resistance, but I also thought there'd be mandates like immediately saying, come on, you're not allowed to come in, you know, come to your work and kill your patients. That should be obvious. Um, and it, it was clearly going on in the VA hospitals. It was going on in nursing homes. You know, it was, was, you know, the diseases weren't arising spontaneously in the nursing homes. People were dying because, visitors or staff members were bringing it in and then suddenly no more visitors were allowed. So clearly it was the staff members introducing it into these places. And just like, you got to tell people it's either get vaccinated or lose your job. And, you know, it took us a long, long, long time to get the vaccine mandates. And, you know, I thought we should have vaccine mandates. that says, 
you know, you don't fly on an airplane unless you can prove you're vaccinated. You don't get to, you know, go into a movie theater. I mean, obviously you got to let people shop for groceries and, and, and do some basic things in life, but there are many, many things in life where we ought to be doing as a few cities are doing like San Francisco and New York saying, you can't come into my restaurant unless you can prove you're vaccinated. You can't come into, you know, your kids can't come back to school unless they prove they're vaccinated. We, you know, we, we make kids get vaccinated against most diseases in school. People, you know, people don't want to go back to the days when you see people. I've seen films of kids dying of diphtheria and people dying of, of those old diseases. And it's horrible. And I think everybody ought to be forced to see those films so they, so they can understand what we missed, you know, what we dodged by having vaccines. You know, one third of all kids in this country usually did not make it to adulthood. That's what you could count on. Um, that's why my parents had five kids and, you know, my stepmother's parents had five kids and when they got married, there were 10 of us. And, you know, you, you counted on having a bunch of kids because you didn't expect all of them to make it to adulthood. Yeah, Catholicism is also part of that, but, um, in my family, but, um, it was just, it was just routine. You had a lot of kids because if you wanted somebody to support you in your old age, especially in the days before social security, you had to count on losing about a third of your kids. Yeah. In your judgment, I'm wandering a little, right? Well, it's, 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 um, I, I, I think it is still relevant. I don't know what the current numbers are in terms of the vaccination rates in the country, but I think it's in the seventies, roughly, that all adults. Yeah. It's something, something like that. Yeah, it's, um, it's 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 mungy because you get more people with one dose, two doses, and three doses. You get kids and teens who haven't been vaccinated yet, but are going to be vaccinated. Um, but yeah, it looks like around a third of the country, or a little less than a third of the country, is yeah. is resistant to one degree or another. Um, I, I would I would that, love to. That's not enough to maintain, to, to stop this disease. It, it's very clear that, that, you know, the level of herd immunity we're going to need with this disease is probably going to be around 90%. Um, and you, you get there through a combination of vaccination and infection, but with the new variants that are more transmissible, having been infected once doesn't necessarily seem to protect you. Um, you know, we, this may, disease may be with us for a while. Yeah. I would love to, to give you a, a, an opportunity and a forum to address Right, the people who are not getting vaccinated, in in my assessment, they have reasons as to what their concerns are. They have concerns that they will willingly tell you if you ask them why they don't want to do it. I would love for you to speak to what you have heard to be the common resistance, the the common arguments against getting vaccinated, both for adults and children, and what your response would be to people like that who are concerned. Well, it's not. There's not just one common argument. There are people who believe the vaccine makes you magnetic. I mean, you you can put a nail up to their foreheads and say, you know, up to your forehead, if you've been vaccinated, say, look, I'm not magnetic, you know, run a magnet over me. There are people who believe that the vaccine contains microchips and that for some reason, Bill Gates is interested in knowing where you are at all times and that there's a microchip that can tell them what you're thinking, like Bill Gates cares. Um, there, there, but a lot of it, I mean, lots and lots of people. Black Americans, you know, worry about Tuskegee. Black Americans have been experimented upon. And so there is a legitimate reason to fear um, what's happened in the past. But, you know, any number of black doctors has said, look, I get it. This isn't Tuskegee. This will save your life. If you don't get it, you know, you're contributing to the death of black Americans. Um, you know, and, and that has happened. They've been hit harder uh, than many other ethnic groups. And, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, was it Nicki Minaj who put out the the tweet about her cousin, you know, growing gigantic testicles after his vaccination and becoming sterile as well? That scares lots of people off. I mean, there's, 
there's any number of crazy levels. And then there's people who just say, well, I'm still doing my research. Um, I was fishing a little while ago in New Mexico and I realized my guide, who was 20 years old, great fishing guide. But as I talked to him, he was not vaccinated. His uncle had died of COVID. His father had MS um, and was very much at risk. His girlfriend was pregnant and neither one of them vaccinated. And I'm like, and I tried to explain him why I'd be vaccinated. By the time we finished talking, he said, you know, nobody's ever explained this to me before. That makes sense. And because I talked about how pregnant women's um, immune systems are, are lowered automatically in order not to reject the baby and a lot of other things. And he, I don't know that I persuaded him, but he said, no one has ta- explained this to me before. And the problem is, you know, people have to take some responsibility for educating themselves. You can't just say, I'm still doing my research. I'm still doing my research. I'm still-. It's been months and months and months now. You got to decide whether or not you really know whether it's dangerous or not. And and unfortunately, it's a question of who do you choose to believe? Do you choose to believe? I mean, it's become Tony Fauci versus Tucker Carlson. Well, which one has spent his whole life as a doctor saving people? And which one is an attention-getting moron? Actually, he's a very smart guy, but he's just a, you know, a guy who's probably been vaccinated himself and, and yet is scaring people away from the vaccine. It's appalling how many people have contributed to the deaths. Well, like I said, probably if we'd done better, we would be, there'd be 200,000 people, 300,000 people alive right now who are dead. And Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson and everybody and Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and everybody else who has contributed to making people afraid of vaccine have that blood on their hands. But my saying that doesn't persuade anybody. I, 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 and, and, facts don't persuade people, I'm sorry to say, or some people, people who get an idea fixed in their head and have decided that you are the enemy, that you are the representative, you know, of big pharma or or that I'm a shill uh, for big pharma or a shill for, you know, the NIH or a shill for whatever. If you've read my coverage, you know, I've been very hard on big pharma most of my life. Um, But it doesn't matter. People don't, people don't read your coverage. People just sort of assume, you know, since you're saying something they disagree with, they assume you must be part of the enemy. And, um, and so I, I don't know a way to persuade anybody except to wait until they see somebody they know and trust die from lack of vaccine. And that is happening, you know, famous, I mean, the sorry anti-vaxxer, and the Herman, yeah, the Herman Cain Awards and stuff, the, the, the websites that make fun of people who have been vaccine denialists and, vaccine, and then have died of COVID, those are very popular websites for people who are full of schadenfreude and like to laugh at other people's misery. And unfortunately, watching people you know die is not much that's more persuasive than that. I mean, in the old days, there were people who didn't believe in polio vaccine. There were people who didn't believe in smallpox vaccine. There were people who didn't believe in diphtheria vaccine. But anybody who's watched a baby die of these things says, oh, my God, what can I do to save my next child? Or what can I do so that what happened to that baby, you know, my sister's baby, doesn't happen to mine? And that's the way people get persuaded. But that's the hard way. That's the path through the graveyards. I mean, we'll get there. We'll get the herd immunity. But it's, it's, we're taking a very hard, long path right through the graveyard, down the stone paths to, to herd immunity yeah. through vaccine reluctance and, and just and people who get infected, you know, because they uh, got unlucky. Yeah. And they, they died. 
is it your assessment of what you understand about the the vaccine, its rollouts, its effects on people that it is essentially fully safe for virtually anyone to take? It's an amazingly safe vaccine. Amazing. I, I mean, I, I found my mother's notes of my vaccine records. So I was born in 1954 and my mother kept incredibly careful records of all the shots I got until I was like 13 years old. Now, the smallpox vaccine in those days was a vaccine so dangerous that it could kill somebody who was immunocompromised. Not everybody, but it, it killed people. The diphtheria vaccine in those days caused seizures in one out of 3,000 shots. A um, bunch of the other vaccines had uh, had problems. Uh, sorry, it wasn't the diphtheria. It was a pertussis vaccine. Uh, the, the whooping cough vaccine caused, caused seizures. So I had four smallpox shots as a child. I had, because that was normal, I had six of the triples, which contained the diphtheria booster. So if you've got a, if you've got a one in 3000 chance uh, of, of uh, having a seizure each time you get the shot and I got the shot six times, um, I'm not sure I'm doing the math right, but that sounds like one in 500 chance of having a seizure. And my mother actually said there was a time when I was sick when I was a little kid that I had, what she thought was a seizure that I was raving about flies on the ceiling or something. And then I went into a kind of briefly into a kind of a catatonic state. It's not unusual for kids with high fevers to have seizures. Um, it might not have been caused by the vaccine. I might've just had a bad cold and had a high fever because of that. But in any case, having a seizure as a child is not the end of the world. I know people have had a single seizure, but, but you know, you don't want that because sometimes people have seizures and they end up, you know, some people die of them. Um, it's, it's, but those vaccines were so dangerous. And yet we all, or, I mean, my parents' generation all gave them to their kids because they had seen, they had known people who lost kids who died of measles. They had known people whose kids had died of diphtheria or maybe not when they were having babies, but when they were little, they had heard tales from my grandmother of people dying. People died of scarlet fever. People died of, of, of or, they were, or they were permanently damaged in life from, from scarlet fever because it goes to your heart and it messes up your heart valves. and so they they had seen those deaths and so they accepted these things very willingly even though they knew the vaccines were dangerous the mrna vaccines are compared to those vaccines insanely safe and so are all the others you know yes there are some cases of myocarditis um not nearly as many cases of myocarditis as there are which is heart inflammation um not nearly as many cases of myocarditis as there are from people who, uh, from getting COVID. I mean, the, the, it's a vast difference between your chances of getting myocarditis if you have COVID and your chances of getting myocarditis if you have, um, if you, if you had a vaccine, it's almost, it's almost not even worth mentioning. I mean, the side effects are so, so few and so far between, um, you know, it's the, it's the job of the media to report the news they hear, the news that's relevant. So of course they report it, but people, you know, the anti-vaxxers then spin this up and make it sound like the vaccines are really dangerous and they, they're constantly pointing to, to um, you know, to, to small numbers of side effects. And really, the side effects from these these the, these vaccines are very, very, very low. Um, and the anti-vaxxers, I just, you know, everybody sort of thinks of the anti-vaxxers as kind of you know union of concerned moms who are worried about their kids. No, it's a bunch of millionaires. It's the people in the vitamin industry. It's people in the clinic industry who you know with with you know, alternative cures or people who are pushing vitamins, pushing herbal supplements, 
pushing um, you know, hyperbaric chambers and pushing chelation. They never let reporters into any of their conferences because they know that they are pushing an anti-vaccine um, story. And, and a lot of families, in order to get notoriety for themselves and to sell their alternative cures. And those alternative cures ultimately kill people. And some of them are literally dangerous and some of them are pointless. Um, you know, like, like, like the whole Laetrile, you know, all the people who went, went to Mexico to get apricot pit treatments for cancer. The apricot tre- treatment didn't hurt them, but the fact that they didn't get regular cancer drugs killed them, they died of cancer because of, because of that, uh, that fixed care. That's, that's how I feel about the anti-vax industry, that they are keeping people away from legitimate prophylactic um, measures and therefore putting them at risk because they're interested in making money and selling them vitamins. Yeah. You mentioned- uh, Not that vitamins aren't a good thing. Vitamins are a good thing. You should definitely have, you know, a a full complement of your vitamins, your minimum daily requirement, maybe a little bit extra, but they are not, you know- I, the people who push them as and 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 push herbal supplements, it's it's a it's an industry with just a lot of bad actors in it. Yeah, the final few things I wanted to go over. The first is related to vaccines and vaccine mandates, and I, I would be interested to know if you know from a legal perspective the history of vaccine mandates, if they exist in the U.S., and what precedent might be tapped into or referenced to mandate that you know children and employees get vaccinated is that something that has been legislated in the country that has has gone through the legal system what what are your yes what's your knowledge related to that okay yes this is actually very clear and when i said i i, I did a session for the newsroom at the times back in early December, I think it was last year, where I said, people need to understand that there's very clear law and Supreme Court precedent on this. You can make people take vaccines or you can, you can't necessarily hold them down on the sidewalk with your knee on their chest and stick a needle in their arm, but you can definitely punish people for not taking vaccines and you can require vaccines as a condition of entry to places, entry to school, entry to employment and things like that. The famous case, the really definitive case in this law, is a 1905 case called Jacobson versus Massachusetts. And Jacobson was a Lutheran pastor in Massachusetts um, back in the 1890s who refused to take the smallpox vaccine. Um, it was, you know, a descendant of the original cowpox vaccine. Um, and Massachusetts passed a law. Now, be it said, this is not federal law. This is state law, and it's 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 state by state. So this is an Really, the federal government, even through World War One and stuff, was not involved in trying to control diseases. That was always seen as a city matter and a state matter, uh, as a matter of law. Um, but uh, he he refused to get vaccinated, um, claiming that he had been vaccinated as a child in Sweden and that it's something he'd had a bad outcome. But also just saying, "This is my personal liberty. I refuse to be vaccinated." The punishment was a five dollar fine. Um, but he, it went all the way to Supreme court and Supreme court ruled that absolutely the state could require him to be vaccinated or make him pay the $5 fine. And the reason, um, you know, conservatives tend to see this as sort of like the second amendment that, you know, you, you know, I have a right to my gun. The state can't take away my gun and the state can't stick its vaccines in my body. 
And liberals tend to see this as sort of like Roe v. Wade. I have a personal right to privacy. You can't take away my right to an abortion and you can't, uh, you know, violate my body by making me take these vaccines. This has nothing to do with your personal rights. It has to do with the police powers of the state. It is, it is more like the power of the state to take away your gun if you are walking down the street shooting people. In other words, the state exists. The government exists partially to protect citizens from each other. You have a police force in order to stop somebody from walking through town like a Viking, killing anybody that he disagrees with. Um, you, you restrain people. Well, in those days, diseases, I mean, pandemics were constant in those days. Scarlet fever, smallpox, things like that, blew through the population. Mortality rates went up and down. Large numbers of people died. And so once there was a way of preventing people from dying, namely a vaccine, so that you didn't lose a third of the kids, you know, in, 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 the, in the country, when smallpox came through, people were required, everybody in Massachusetts was required to take the vaccine. And because, because to prevent them from killing other people was the basis of the law. Um, that is still the precedent and the Supreme Court has gone by. And that has allowed things like vaccination requirements in school. I mean, you know, kids to go to school in, this, in most states in this country, in all states in this country, have to have a whole plethora of shots. You have to have measles shots. You have to have had whooping cough shots. You have to have had, you know, tetanus shots. You have to have lots of things so that you don't spread the disease. Over. Some of these are communicable diseases. Tetanus is not a communicable disease, but you still have to have had all these shots. Um, and that's been totally legal and upheld all, all these years. Um, the OSHA requirements that, that Biden is using is a little trickier. It's very clear that companies can require people to, um, to basically keep a healthy workplace. As in, if you've got communicable multi-drug resistant TB, you can't come work in my kitchen if you work in my restaurant. I can legally exclude you because you are putting on me and all my other workers and all my customers at risk of death. So, uh, yeah, similarly, you know, you can make people wear hard hats for their own, uh, for their own, and you can require all sorts of things to happen on a work site so that fewer people die. You know, the standards you set for safe scaffolding and things like that, those, those kind of things can be imposed by the state. So that is considered, um, normally something you, you can impose. Uh, it's being battled because it hasn't, there hasn't really been precedent for vaccination in the workplace before. But it's, you know, a lot of scholars think this ought to fall under the precedent of the, the kind of, you know, establishing, keeping a work safe workplace that OSHA is responsible for. Um, and so, um, yeah, a lot of companies have been very eager to put vaccine mandates on their employees, but they were waiting for leadership from the federal government. And yeah, you can, you can, you know, put vaccine mandates on airlines and things like that, because you're allowed, you know, for the same reason you can take guns and knives away from people when they get on an airplane, you want to be able to prevent them from spreading germs to each other, as well as, you know, bullets to each other. Yeah. So if I'm hearing you correctly, it really is a state, state decision, but provided the state is mandating the vaccinations that will, that historically was upheld by the Supreme Court. As far back as 1905, when this was declared. Now, People are going to find reasons to fight it. The same reason, you know, I mean, uh, the legal basis for Roe v. Wade is actually a lot shakier than the re legal basis for this decision. 
Um, you know, there's not, no mention in the Constitution of, of, of I'm not going to get into that. That's this is I don't need to I don't need the trouble. This is going to get me. But believe me, the Constitution, you know, the whole notion of forming a government is to prevent one citizen from harming others. And so, you know, defining the limits of the police powers of the state is takes up a lot of time of the courts. But part of it depends on the idea that the state does have police powers to uh, to create a safe environment for its citizens to live in. And this was seen, you know, the, the vaccines were seen as part of creating a safe state, a place, you know, part of stopping diseases that kill people in the state. You, you can take a lot of measures the same way you can quarantine people who have diseases. I mean, there was no question in those days that when somebody had polio, when somebody had measles, when somebody had scarlet fever, you could lock them in their house, nail a sign to the door, big red letters saying measles inside. And the sign said, no one comes in and no one goes out without permission of the board of health. And if you had to post a policeman um, in front of the door, you could do that because that was the way you stopped communicable diseases in the old days. Yep. And we're, we're facing communicable disease. You know, we're, we're now two, roughly two years out from what, you know, the, the beginning of the spread of the coronavirus. And I, I'd be curious to know, given your knowledge of, of what we now know about it, if what you believe to be the genesis of the coronavirus in, in the first place of COVID-19, is it, you can speak to that in however much detail as you'd like. Okay. You mean, are you asking me, did it come from an animal or was it, did it leak from a lab? In yes. China? I mean, these are, yeah. Okay. The answer is, I don't know. Yeah. Um, I became pretty controversial a few months ago when I wrote an article on Medium that got a lot of play that said, it is time to give the lab leak theory another serious look. And the reason was because the lab leak theory had basically been, dis- it had been popped out in early 2020. And I went into some of the origins of that, of, of that theory, but it eventually shifted over to the point where it was considered part of crazy QAnon, yeah. Kung flu, you know, anti-Chinese, uh, you know, talk and, and dismissed by the media. And then, and I had written an article um, back in, uh, started in February, 2020, and then rewrote it. It was, I think I sort of abandoned it in April, 2020, that essentially said, it's quite clear that it was not a lab leak, that it was a jump from an animal. Scientists say. And the article never ran, partially because we had a sort of division within the New York Times as to whether to believe the people, mostly in the Trump administration, but some people, but national security people, many of them from the Trump administration, some of them from previous administrations, pushing the idea that this was a lab leak, but they were always talking off the record and they had no evidence. Um, they just plain had no evidence when you asked them for what it was. It was more like, you know, you know, kind of rumors and it could have happened and there were some problems with this lab, and but, but there was no proof. Meanwhile, all the world's virologists you know, who were looking at this virus said, this has all the hallmarks of an animal virus. And they were speaking on the record with their names used and explaining their facts in great detail. But there was still, still a sort of debate going on at the time. So the, the article sat. And also it was about 4,000 words long. It was full of words like, um, you know, O-linked glycan shields and, uh, 
well, receptor binding domain. I mean, now we're, we're used to hearing things like spike protein, your receptor binding domain. But back then my editors just kind of went, oh my God, I can't read this. And nobody, you know, nobody wanted to take it on. So it just sort of sat until it died. But anyway, a few months ago, I wrote this article saying, hey, enough. I, I Now, be it said, another former colleague of mine, Nick Wade, who used to work for the New York Times, senior to me and retired years ago, he had written an article in the both in the atomic scientists saying it's time to take another look at the lab leak theory. I disagreed with a lot of his precepts because he sort of saw the beginning of the lab leak theory in, in the echo health Alliance and he was attacking Tony Fauci. And I didn't agree with any of that, but his article pointed to a lot of things that have been written in the meantime. The most interesting part was some work that had been done by internet sleuths and virologists who realized uh, if you remember, very soon after the virus was discovered, the Wuhan Institute of Virology said, hey, we have a virus in our freezers that is not the same virus, but is 96% identical. And that made a lot of people go, aha, that's it. That's a smoking gun. If it's 96%, it must be it. And virologists all over went, wait, 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 wait. This virus mutates slowly so that in a virus of 30,000 base pairs, if only 96% of them are identical, the, those, that other 4% would have taken almost 40 years that, to get that many mutations in a, in, a, in a virus that long. So they said, this means these two viruses had a common ancestor in a bat somewhere, but they're not the same virus. That virus was known as RATG13, which is, sounds like RAT13, but it's actually Rhinopolis affinis, the name of the bat. TG for Tongguan Caves, where it was found, 2013, the year it was found. Okay, RATG13 was thought to be some virus. They just happened to pull out of their freezer and say, hey, we have something that's 96% identical. Isn't this an interesting curiosity? Turns out, in the intervening year, they figured out they had actually been working with that virus for a while, but under a different name, R-A-B-T, I've forgotten. Um, the number, but it was it, it was this, it was the same virus. It was under a different name, and they knew that virus had come from a cave where miners had gotten pneumonia because they were digging bat guano out of the cave, used for fertilizer, bat poop, and some of those miners had died. So that means it was not just some random virus, of one of hundreds of viruses they had gotten in sampling bats from caves. This was actually a virus. They'd gone to do an investigation of the deaths in that cave, and people had died of pneumonia. That makes it a, a virus that somebody would very likely have chosen to play with if they were doing gain-of-function research, which is taking a virus and seeing if you can make a dangerous virus more transmissible or a transmissible but mild virus more dangerous. I know that doing that kind of research sounds crazy. People think, why in the world would we do that research? You do it kind of for the same reasons that you do nuclear testing. Yep. You did not want to drop your bomb on Japan at the end of World War II without first having blown it up in Nevada or blown up a similar one in Nevada in order to see if it worked because you don't want to lose an entire flight of planes in order to drop a dud on another country. You sometimes have to do dangerous research in order to prove that something, well, well in, this, in this case, if you have a hundred viruses and you want to know which ones 
you know, and you know they're circulating and you want to know which one is most likely to become a pandemic virus, you might want to see if it only takes a few tweaks in that virus to see if it's dangerous so that you can then make vaccines or monoclonal antibodies against that. It's dangerous work. There's no question. And probably doing it in the middle of a big city and having people going in and out and home at night, stuff like that is not the right way to do it. But there are arguments for doing this kind of research. Some scientists, and, and I, I know scientists on both sides, some of them think there ought to be an absolute ban on this stuff. Some of them think it's necessary. It's dangerous, but it's necessary. In any case, we know the Chinese were doing similar work. They were, the other thing that came out was that, was that um, uh, Xi Sheng Li, who was the woman who runs the Institute of, of Virology, had been doing uh, chimera work, which is where you take the body of one virus and you put the head of another virus, or you put the spike, spike protein of another virus on it, and you see if they infect human cells. All that added up to that, plus the fact that the Chinese have really been acting like a country with something to hide. They have not... Now, the non-sharing of the first virus samples doesn't bother me so much. I understood why they were why they were touchy back in the beginning. They had an epidemic to fight, and they don't like it when the United States comes marching in and says, here, let us send in a team. We'll show you how to do things. The Chinese attitude is, hey, you know, we've got a very good functioning CDC here. We have a lot of the world's top scientists. Many of them have gone to Harvard Medical School and places like that, and then have come back to China. We can handle this. We don't need your snotty attitude, United States. And we don't need your insults either, calling it the Kung Flu. I understand why they were looking back then. But now, after more than a year, it would be a whole lot better if they wanted to reassure the world by saying, here's what we've got. We did our own investigation. We looked at all the lab logs. We know exactly what viruses were worked on in every one of these labs, not just the Wuhan Institute of Virology, but the sister labs nearby, the military labs that are appear to be somewhat attached, people that she's trained, that Xi Jinping has trained, you know, and we're sure that that virus was not being played with and that this was not a lab leak. And here's how we know. They have not done that. They, they could have done They could just open up the lab logs and say, here's what we know. So the whole concatenation of these things makes me think, I don't know if that's what happened, but it's less kooky sounding than it was a year ago. Yeah. And the only way we're ever going to know is not if we ask the National Security Agency to look into it. This is like asking the FBI to solve a murder in Moscow, but not allowing them to have visas to go to Moscow and, you know, look at the crime scene. You, you really, you can only count on the Chinese doing it. And whether or not the Chinese do it or not, I don't know. It seems to me the people who should be demanding an answer from the Chinese government is the Chinese people. They're the first ones whose heads are on the chopping block. If this, this virus, who did it kill first? Thousands of people in Wuhan. If they make another mistake like that, if it was a mistake, who will get killed first? Thousands of people in another city in China. So, the, you know, I'd say that the Chinese government has a responsibility of its own people to come clean and say, we absolutely know this was not a lab leak and we can prove it. And here's how we know. Yeah. Yeah. Short of that, the obvious answer is an animal spillover. I mean, because we saw that with MERS, we saw that with SARS. MERS very clearly jumps into humans from camels, gets from bats into camels. Um, probably through camels eating fruit that bats have pooped on or gnawed or whatever. And we know that um, uh, SARS got into people. It was a bat virus, somehow got into animals, probably civets and raccoon dogs that are sold in, um, in markets in China. And that may have jumped to humans that way. I mean, we, we, we're not dead sure we don't have the proof, but that seems to be the most obvious route. Um, so 
since we know there's a whole history. I mean, virtually all diseases we have come from animals. Even whooping cough is probably it's a related. Um, it's related to kennel cough and dogs, and and uh, measles is related to a virus that cows get. Um, maybe all these things may have come from animals, or we give them animals. You never you ever know. Back in prehistory, when you know which, which way the jump went, but um, uh, it, so animal spillover is the obvious solution. I just I'd really like to know. I really like if the Chinese did an open investigation and said to the world, "Here's what we know, and here's how we know it." Yeah. I appreciate you giving all that detail. Um, last question I, I would like to talk to you about is kind of, you've alluded to some of this before, but where you think we go from here in terms of mitigating future risks of something like this happening in the, in the U S in the future. Um, how do you think about that? You've talked in detail about how we could have done a better, much better job related to testing. And that would have saved many, many lives. Um, you know, what would be your recommendations for the government, but also for citizens who are listening to this related to what m- might be worth keeping in mind for future pandemics like the one we just experienced? I, I don't, I'm not worried about just, you know, a little better surveillance or something. Look at it this way. This is something that the Mike Ryan of the WHO has said to me for years. He says, look, you superpowers spend trillions of dollars preparing to fight World yep. War Three." Bombers, missiles, submarines, huge armies, trillions and trillions of dollars. How many people have died, you know, as a result of, of, of missiles being fired at you? Zero, basically. How many people have died as a result of diseases? You know, uh, 700,000 from AIDS. I mean, just in this country. I mean, you know, the phenomenal numbers of people die from these diseases. And we spend pennies on them. We are, you know, the, the budget of the WHO is, is smaller than the budget of uh, Columbia Presbyterian Hospital in, the, in New York City. Um, the, the, you know, the, the amount of money we spend on surveillance um, for, for new viruses in, uh, in Asia, in Mexico, in, you know, in our own country, anywhere, is a tiny, tiny fraction of the amount of money we spend looking for missiles coming over the North Pole or, or uh, you know, sonar to pick up submarines going around the world. I mean, we we hugely, hugely underspend. So I'd be in favor of you know treating diseases as the true enemies that they are and spending much more money on them. One of the first things I do is I like to create a Pentagon for disease fighting. Who's in charge of fighting this pandemic? Ask yourself, who's actually in charge? I mean, okay, the president is in charge. All this, the president's always in charge. Under him, who was in charge under Trump? Who is in charge under Joe Biden? Is it Tony Fauci? No, Tony Fauci's the head of a research institute. Is it Rochelle Walensky, head of the CDC? No, she's the head of the CDC. She can't give orders to anybody. They are essentially a disease investigation agency and a standard setting agency. Um, you know, is it is it uh, Jeff Zients or Andy uh, uh, Andy Slavitt or any, anybody like you know, the people who've been in the White House? Everybody is it the head of the FDA? Is it the head of the NIH? Every everybody has this little fragmented role to play in all these diseases. Whereas, if we're fighting a war, you bloody well know who's in charge and whose head rolls if you blow it. You know, there is a you know there is a Joint Chiefs of Staff. There is a Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. There are generals in charge or admirals in charge of every one of the of the armed services. There is a general or an admiral in charge of every single military operation, from Operation Overlord to Desert Freedom. And if they screw up, they're out. And 
you know, more people die from this than die from that. So I would like a complete wholesale rewrite of the way we approach diseases so that it's on a more, doesn't, it doesn't have to be militarized so much as it has to be a chain of responsibility so that it's very clear who's in charge, very clear where the lines of authority are, and very clear who suffers if they, if they blow it and what the goals are. You know, I mean, you know, we're stumbling through this disease almost as badly as we stumbled through Afghanistan for 20 years. So then on top of that, there are lots of things I'd like to see done. I'd like to see us sampling. Um, I mean, there is a thing called the Global Virome Project where they're going to try to sequence every virus in the world. I think that's too complicated. Um, every I think we absolutely ought to be sampling humans all over the world, particularly humans involved in uh, occupations that are likely to be animal spillovers. So small farmers in the third world, small, small villagers, people who go into caves to dig bat guano, uh, people who smuggle wildlife, pay them a hundred dollars to give you a blood sample and then say, good, go on your way. We don't even want to, and, and can I take some blood from the animals you're smuggling, things like that, but we're not going to bother you. We're not going to force the law. We just want, we just want to see what diseases you have, because if you can spot a virus that has already made the jump to humans that already can infect humans, you have a huge jump on you know, that. That's much more important than one of a, a dozen viruses that any bat might be carrying. Um, you know, I'd like to see laboratories support built it and supported all over the world. So you can do this work. You don't have to fly the samples all back to the CDC and countries are, are reporting this kind of thing. We, we have got, we, because of Ebola, we got started in that direction, but we need much more of it. I'd like to see much more international cooperation on other diseases the way we have on the flu vaccine every year. We're pretty good about, about sending flu samples all over the world. I'd, I'd like us to be sending samples of virtually every disease around the world. Um, I'd like us to rethink the way companies make pills for diseases. I mean, right now we've got the Merck pill and the Pfizer pill that both might work against COVID. It is much better to have a combination drug, a cocktail. We know this from AIDS. We know this from hepatitis C. We even know this from tuberculosis and, and, um, and other diseases that cocktails or drugs work better. You have two or three drugs in one pill. The drugs can't, the, the disease can't mutate to escape the pill if, the, if it's facing a cocktail of drugs. But companies can't do that because the antitrust laws in, in this country dating back to the 19th century prevent pe- companies from working together. Okay. That's fine if you're trying to in, encourage competition in sewing machines or reapers or cotton gins or, or cars or anything else. You want a lot of competition, but you want life-saving drugs to be combined with each other. So I think we ought to carve out an exception to the antitrust laws in this country so the companies can work together to test their drugs together and put them together in the same pill. Because I think the big difference between a life-saving drug and a, and a cotton gin um, so and there's, there's, and I'm going to go into a lot of this in my book. I think there's many, many, many wholesale changes we need to make in this country in order to do a better job of fighting pandemics because we are not ready for the next one. And believe me, this is not going to be the last pandemic. If I'm lucky, it'll be the last one of this magnitude in my lifetime. Definitely not going to be, you know, in my kids and grandkids' lifetime. There'll be more, and it could be a lot worse. It could definitely be a lot worse. We got lucky with only two percent mortality or so with this one. Yeah. I really appreciate you sharing all this information because I feel like you're one of the people in the world who can actually speak to these kind of questions related to what we, what, what happened. And more importantly, probably at this point, what we can do moving forward to try to reduce some of the risks. And, and maybe if, if you could plug your book in terms of when it's coming out, the name, um, it might be helpful for people to, to know if they want to access that information in, in book form. 
I'd love to plug it. <laughs> I have to finish it by October. Tentatively, the name is Lessons from Pandemics, but that might not end up being the, the final name. I, uh, I've got people kind of roll their eyes and go, that sounds like it ought to be a textbook. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, you know, my name is Donald G. McNeil Jr. And, uh, you know, maybe there'll be a book out there where you type that in and you'll, you'll be able to get a book when it's done. Um, I'm just struggling. I, I don't have writer's block. I might, you, you've heard me talk. I can't shut up. Um, so the, the, the problem is actually forming it into a book length piece that, that makes sense. And it's supposed to be, it's not just about this pandemic. It's going to be about all the things I learned in 25 years of covering other pandemics and what lessons that, how that helped me predict this one and that, or, or anticipate, see this one early on and how it would help us, um, what lessons we might take in that will help us prevent future ones. Thanks for doing this, man. It was really great to meet you. And I I really appreciate you sharing all this information. I think this will be helpful moving forward for people to to reference and to listen to. So I I really appreciate the time. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for, you know, you've been very patient too. (laughs) I can see that. I'm waving my arms and getting more and more more and more uh, caught up in this stuff. Um, Yeah. uh, Some ways it's kind of nice to be unleashed. I don't have to worry about uh, being so timesian anymore. So I can can understand that. Say what I actually think. Yeah. which is not always friendly <laughs> it's liberating <laughs> or objective yeah. yeah all right thank you dan thank you okay. great to meet you thank you for listening to this episode of keep talking if you are finding value in this podcast please consider supporting the show on patreon at patreon.com backslash keep talking podcast i truly appreciate all of you who are supporting the show 